2 Timothy 2, 1-7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's get down to business. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. I thank you. I thank you specifically for your grace this morning. Without it, we have no hope. We have no hope of glory and we have no hope of making disciples who make disciples for generations. And Father, I really pray today, Lord, my soul has been stirring up, Lord, the desire to make disciples. And Father, I pray that through the hearing of the word today, the transmission of the word to their hearts, would be one in which people in here long to make disciples who make disciples. And so, Father, I pray today, as we meditate on your grace, you begin that work and bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning, friends. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's good to be with you. I am so excited to preach and honor to teach this morning. I'm a part of a disciple-making ministry called the Navigators in OKC, and we love verse 2. Yes, I am a pastor at Redemption Church, but I'm also a navigator. In verse 2, it says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, in fact, any disciple-making ministry loves this verse. Amen? Because in it, there's a laser focus of what spiritual generations is all about. One generation passing it on to another. And age, life stage, doesn't seem to be the issue. It is more about mature Christians teaching other faithful Christians to pass it on to faithful and capable people who will teach it to others also, and so forth, and so on. So you can do that while you're married, single, poor, rich. Come on now. Come on now. I'm about to start preaching. Male, female. In fact, the Greek... For man, in verse 2, is anthropos, which just means a person of the human race. So for the rest of the sermon, I might say people, and I might say man. 
Don't hold it against me. It all means the same thing in my eyes. So I might flip between one or the other, but the Greek remains the same. This charge to Timothy is for all people. Again, I'm going to say it again. This charge to Timothy is for all people. Look at your neighbor. Say it's for you. But hear me out. I love verse 2. But what is not talked about enough, and this is where we're going to dwell on today, is the power and mindset behind a generational disciple maker. My friends, the ability to do generational discipleship and disciple making is through grace. Everybody say grace. My focus today is not to give you a bunch of how-tos to make disciples, but instead to draw you closer to the grace that will allow for all of it to happen. Then I want to look at three metaphors and see how they can teach us and keep us on track so we may be impactful generational disciple makers who are full of the hope of glory. My sermon title today is Grace in the Hope of Glory. Grace in the Hope of Glory. But first, let's talk a little bit about Timothy and why Paul would even instruct him in this way. Timothy was a disciple of Christ. How we know that is through Acts chapter 16. Before Paul even stepped into Timothy's life, Timothy was already in a learning posture. Paul later in this book said from infancy, he was acquainted, Timothy was acquainted with the scriptures. Shout out to all the children's church leaders and disciple makers. Do you guys know how impactful the work you do is? Do you? I want you to know that. When you sit in that room with that child and they're hearing the word of God, God is doing and breaking some generational chains that you may not even know is happening. Spiritual generations are happening all in that room in there. Multiple rooms, actually. Sorry, it's like, how many is there? Steph, how many is there? Three? Okay, good. Three rooms. There's so much disciple-making happening in there. I think sometimes some who do work in that are being lied to. It's not that important. It's not that important. But what you're participating in is a sacred, generational work. To continue, we learn further of Timothy, that he had a believing mother in Acts chapter 16. And in it, it explains that he was a disciple And then chapter 1 
of 2 Timothy parses it out even more. It says that Timothy had a grandmother who was also dope too. No mention of grandpa, but dad was mentioned in Acts chapter 16 to be a Greek man, which probably meant he was an unbeliever. Which, as a side note, you've heard this story before, haven't you, church? Maybe it's similar to your story. Friends, this should give you great courage today. If you only had one parent, that God was still working in your life. And maybe some of you in here, single mothers, single fathers, don't have somebody else to ride with you to teach the good news to your kids. And you're wondering, is God going to work through me and work in my life? And the answer is yes. It's yes. And you have no idea what's about to happen. Timothy had a dope grandma and a dope mom. And so he learned the scriptures. And if you just remain faithful, you have no idea what God is going to do. Timothy was a leader of God's church. Pan passed from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he took it and he went the distance to finish the race. And now he sits in glory honored by churches throughout the history for generations upon generations, all because of faithfulness of a grandma and a mom. It should give you great courage, church. To continue, Paul earlier in the book reminds him of his spiritual legacy. He said, Grandma Lois and Mother Eunice were people who held fast to the truth. And he encouraged him through that testimony to use them God-given gifts and to follow in their footsteps. My friends, some of us need to be reminded, you have a grandma, a grandpa, a mother, a father, like Timothy, who gave their lives sacrificing that you could know the truth in the best way that they knew how. We should be thankful for them. Maybe some of you this week need to pick up a phone and say, thank you for birthing me. Thank you for teaching me the scriptures. Thank you for loving me. Because it came with a cost in some way. We should imitate their faith. And pass it on. You also may not have a spiritual legacy. But here's an encouraging word for you today. Even if you are a first generation believer. And you have been grafted into a spiritual family of believers. And as Paul writes. You really are. A child of Abraham through faith, a child of immortality and hope with a rich heritage. And not only that, but that means you are a spiritual son or daughter of the Lord and the wider community of saints who faithfully passed it on. Church family, 
The only reason we are in here today, understanding the word like we do, is because some people had this vision. And they fathered and mothered us. And grandfathered and grandfathered us. Spiritually and biologically. So we may know and be able to participate in the legacy of generational discipleship. You can, friends, if you believe this, leave a legacy of generations for generations and decades to come. Paul was not Timothy's biological dad, but he was a spiritual father to him. Timothy was not Paul's biological son, but he was a spiritual son to Paul. Timothy would indeed go on to be a father to many who would pass it on as well. And many of you are single people in this room, like Paul, who was single his whole life. And he left a spiritual legacy beside that touches. It touched the far ends of the corners of the earth. You can do that. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids biologically. You can leave a spiritual legacy behind. But you gotta endure to the end. You beloved have a heritage of people, faithful people who endured to the end, who showed you what it meant to know God. And they are hoping that you will do the same because they saw a future with you as a faithful who will teach others also. But there will be some suffering. And they suffered much to do so. Verse 3 says, share in suffering. They did it for your sake and your children's sake and your children's children biologically and spiritually. Suffering is a key theme of Timothy. Verse 3 again says share and suffering. As many of you know, suffering is part of the Christian journey. It is as if we are ourselves bearing the very marks and very afflictions that we're lacking in Christ. But suffering can do for us what sometimes nothing else can. It can make us dependent. This task of disciple-making cannot be done in our own strength, church family, which is why we have verses like verse 1 to bolster us. Verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, you may be thinking, Pastor Jerry, you don't know what it's like. It's so hard. I have such a mountain to climb myself before I can pass on anything to anybody. 
Or maybe when John Mark was making the analogy of swimming through a generational riptide last week, you said, yep, that's me. And it just feels downright unachievable to make progress. Or maybe you're too afraid all the time. How can I make disciples when I'm so afraid? It seems like you don't have the required ability to achieve this. I can relate to this. Can you relate to this? So can Timothy. Well, if this is you today, I got some good news for you today. You don't have the ability. You don't. But God can. Everybody say grace. My friends, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of self-control. Church family, do you know if you lack the power to make disciples, if you lack the love to make disciples, if you lack the self-control to make disciples, some of you are thinking, man, I don't have enough self-control and self-discipline. To make disciples. I'm dominated by my passions constantly. I have nothing to pass on to the next generation. Friends and family, do you know if you lack those things, you can come to the throne of grace and he will strengthen you. He will give you the power and authority to do this. And you then, my child, will be strengthened in the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, church family? Friends, do you know the grace of Jesus Christ was not only the saving power that gave you eternal life when Christ Jesus died on the cross for your sins, thereby freeing you from sin, Satan, and death. But it is also, is also the very thing that saves you, sustains you, and gives you the very resurrection power that Jesus used to raise from the dead. That same power is available to you through grace. That grace is available to you today. You then, my child, focus on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Change your mind, church family, and decide that you're going to trust in God's grace today. All of the things in your life that is hindering a generational outpouring of disciple-making can be overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ. So then take hold of this grace made readily available to you. That grace is enough to change you and give you a new nature capable of rightly discerning truth from error. That grace will have you walking in wisdom, destroying fear, dancing on snakes, even in the face of suffering. That grace will give you a deep and profound love, even for those who do not like you, or even flat out are ops. That's enemies if you don't know what that, that means. That grace is yours, church family. Be strengthened by it day by day. And the struggle to believe it 
is nothing new. This isn't new. Even in this first verse, do you see the two words that say, you then? Everybody say, you then. Which in the Greek is soon, which is a conjunction connecting the points to the previous verses in chapter 1. By all accounts, only a few folk were really seeing Paul and the word of God preached in public for actually what it was. Now, I'm not going to go into why Paul, in verse 2, says that he did his ministry in public. I won't get into the significance of his preaching and the unhidden revelation of Christ that seemed to throw his teaching up against the Gnostic philosophy of his day, the Gnostic religion of his day, and the quote-unquote secret revelation. If you're interested in more of that, read Phillips Towner's commentary on Timothy. But there is some importance to where I'm going, so I'm going to mention that in passing, but I want you to hear what the significance is. Paul demonstrated courage and faithfulness in front of many people. And it was plain for all to see. He did miraculous things, was even called a god. And after the mystique ran off, many people ran him off, tried to even kill him. And Timothy was not a punk, but there must have been some tendency there. Must have been some tendency that Paul was seeing to shrink back or be afraid and to lose focus and, and with so much opposition at hand. And Paul's ministry must have seemed weak to many, but it wasn't weak. So what Paul is saying here is this. It's almost like Paul is saying, see, Timothy, you might be timid, timid maybe discouraged. If you read the first part of this letter, from Paul to Timothy, if Timothy loved him at all, it would have been enough to discourage any of us. But Paul said this served to advance the gospel and that suffering was par for the course. So sharing it, Timothy, is what you are called to do. Paul in chapter one said many deserted him. Paul said he was in chains. So Paul is saying in order to be faithful in this hostile world, you're going to need to have the same grace that sustains me, Timothy. Though I be in chains, I know on whom I believed, chapter 1, verse 12, and I am not ashamed of the gospel Though I have been deserted in all the provinces of Asia, chapter 1, verse 15, I am pressing on with the grace of Christ. Timothy, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And not only that, but pass that thing on to those who will indeed teach others to do the same. You're going to need that grace for that, Timothy, but you can have it through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This grace is the everyday power through the gospel that will give you the ability you need to be generational 
disciple makers. So Paul gives Timothy three metaphors for him to chew on that are meant to encourage him to finish the race that is set before him through the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is where we will finish today. As we abide in God's grace, how can we therefore discern whether we are in the right path or not? Let's look at these three metaphors, verses 4 through 6. The first is a soldier continuing from verse 3. How does this teach us about what it is needed to be a generational disciple maker? Well, there's something to a warlike mentality that most of the time, due to relative peace, we are just honestly divorced from. But there are a few in here who know what it felt like to either be in a war or live during a time of unrest. It seems to put things in perspective, doesn't it? Things that matter. States of emergencies, like pandemics and wars, do that. Amen, church? When it's wartime, civilians even know how to respond. In fact, back in the World War II era, John Stott comments, that it was common for people to abstain from what is called, quote-unquote, innocent activities, meaning activities that weren't important so they could sacrifice. And as they would go about in a state of, like, wartime mode, they would say to each other, in order to justify their actions, there's a war on. Friends, I don't know if you know this or not. J.C. Ryle says that it is a shame that most young people do not know the spiritual warfare that they are encountering. Friends, there's a war on. And we are in a battle until Jesus comes back. Not saying we should cast everything aside that is pleasurable or good. In fact, I would say that the Christian might ought to be attuned to the good even more than a non-believer. So much so that the Christian gives glory at all times to where it is due. Do you know you can steal God's glory while enjoying things? Do you know you can give God glory while enjoying things? Friends, I want to give glory where it's due. In fact... I would say that such a view would be in line with something that Paul said to Timothy in his first letter. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But here is the key. Everything we do, whether we eat, or sleep, whether we are suffering and struggling or holy feasting, we do it for the Lord. It's wartime. We don't have time to fast and holy feast not unto the glory of God. Amen.
which our staff has been thinking a lot about holy feasting as a form of resistance. If you want to know more about that, go ask Jordan Hutchings. He will give you the whole rundown about the whole thing. Hey, Jordan. Yeah. He'll tell you the whole thing. But friends, I just want to please the one who enlists me. Do you want that, church? At the end of my days, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to live by his marching orders. I want to please the one who enlisted me. Church, do you? Meditate on these verses. The Lord will give you more insight. The second is an athlete. Verse 5 says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. How does this teach us about what is needed to be a generational disciple maker? Two things that you can glean from this, and there's many things, but I'm just going to give you two today. The importance of both the Christian life and Christian service. First, the Christian life. Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, they all played the game extremely well. Did some things that were unheard of in 60 and then 63 and then 70 something. I can't remember how many it was, 70 something, whatever, home runs in the season. They were smacking them things out. I remember, I'm not even the biggest baseball fan, but as soon as I saw Barry Bonds was about to get him in the, he's, and I was like, turn that on. I want to see that. And he would smack that thing, and I'd be like, that's crazy. They did it so well that it was like almost other human-like. There's no way that could possibly be done. They started to wonder if it was possible to even do that. But then when the testing came, they all had their... Thanks, John Mark. (laughs) Glory to God. They all had their records stripped from them as they were found out to be frauds, y'all. Friends, we want to be people who, in running the race, are found to be playing the game well, but also playing by the rules. We don't want to get to the finish line and the official comes and takes the medal from us, takes the reef off our heads and says, man, you are on some pads. You skipped a lap in your journey. We don't want that. Amen, church? In the same way, when we try to live amoral lives and make disciples, it will turn out that we were disqualified and we will nullify half of what the Lord wanted to do in the first place, which is to transform us as well. Friends, the good athlete competes according to the rules and disciplines his body and keeps it under control so that after preaching it to others, they are not disqualified. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 for that. But, friends, it is not just about Christian integrity, integrity morally. This metaphor has a wider meaning, that we are to remain faithful in our Christian service 
as well, meaning fidelity to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are, to, we are to race in a proper way so that people receive the proper Jesus. We don't just go running in any old way. Like a skilled track runner, we learn how to get in them blocks and we learn how to jump out them things in the right way. We don't just aim aimlessly. The Christian disciple maker races to Jesus at the first chance. As soon as that gun goes off, he's in a line beam. She's in a line beam to that finish line. And Jesus is the finish line. And at first chance, he does it. And he does so because the rules dictate so. The Christian races to Jesus, who was crucified and risen from the grave. We teach and preach that from house to house, city to city, neighborhood to neighborhood. And our gospel message has been handed down like a passing of a baton to, from Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to faithful people and so forth and so on. And we preach that Jesus and we teach that until Jesus comes back. We do that with our lips and our feet. It's not just lip service, and it's not just walking, it's both. We live it and proclaim it, and therefore receive what only an athlete who competes according to the rules can get. A crown, a trophy. And when done so, according to the rules, it cannot be taken away. The soldier and the athlete. These two metaphors work hand in hand together, and so does our next metaphor. The third is a farmer. How does this teach us about what is needed to be a generational disciple maker? Well, where the athlete must play fair, the farmer must work hard. The verb here for hard working could be translated toiling. The point of this metaphor is that we are just going to have to work hard. There's no way around that. We're just going to have to work hard. How many people have had at some point lived on or worked a farm? Can I get a show of hands? How many people have owned a garden or a lawn? Some, some of y'all like, uh, I mean, if you could call that a garden. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, I'm right there with you. I just killed my snake plant in my office. Oh, goodness. How do you kill a snake plant? Lord, have mercy. <clears throat> Them things is hard to care for sometimes, amen? There's highs and lows with it, you know? But what is great is there's a reward if we continue on. Ain't nothing better than when you get to reap, reap the fruit of your labor, right, church? New crops come in. Grass is looking right. I love it. I hate it at the time. I'm sitting there mowing. Oh, I hate this. But then when I get done with it later, somebody coming over and hanging out at my house. My lawn is all mowed and nice. Kids are running around in it. I'm just glorying in the Lord. I'm so thankful for his beautiful creation. Grass is just looking right. Flowers are exploding everywhere. 
beautiful colors, radiant. Where am I going with this? I got lost for a second. Uh, let me go back. Verse 6. It's a hard-working farmer who ought to give his... To, who ought to have the first share of the crops. Friends, it is a hard-working farmer who gets this, not the sluggard. He can't be sluggish in this. If you want an interesting like study on this, go to the book of Proverbs and just like look for the farming metaphors and then look how it's connected to hard work, and then look at what happens when somebody is sluggard or sluggish. It's not nice. But for those who endure and work hard at disciple-making, you will be rewarded with the first share of the crops. This crop is symbolic for reward. Reward is connected to the thing that I really want us to leave here with today. Everybody say grace. But everybody else say the hope of glory. Reward is connected to a mindset of a hope of glory. We labor through grace with a hope of glory. Paul's life is perfect for this, right? Paul worked hard. He shared in suffering in his life. But before his eyes constantly was an unshakable hope that allowed him to finish well. And he got that from Jesus. Read Hebrews and you will see that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. And Paul picked up on this. And he endured the suffering because he saw joy on the other side. He saw glory on the other side. When Jesus rose from the grave, glory awaited him. What was rightfully his was handed to him. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him. And in order to endure to the very end and have a generational impact, we need this vision. This vision of disciple making is eschatological in nature, meaning heavenly rewards, heavenly rewards in the time to come. This is the hope of glory. Friends, today, would you do me a favor and take Paul up on verse 7? Verse 7 says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. To meditate on these metaphors and allow the Lord to teach you even more than I taught you today, even more than I preached today, may God do that for you. Paul commissioned Timothy to reflect on these things which was his part, and to trust God to give him understanding. But, but Paul gave these for a reason. 
These metaphors are pointing to something. And meditating on these will point you in the direction of true discipleship that will bear generational fruit. It comes from grace. And it gives us, in future generations, a hope of glory. All three metaphors in succession start off by explaining that there needs to be a focus now, a discipline now, suffering even now, but also a promise of better to come. That if we endure to the very end, we will have found that we have indeed Please, the one who enlisted us. We will receive an imperishable wreath put on our heads and we will reap in due season and it will be a beautiful harvest. Doesn't that sound good, church? Our hope is eternal. It's immortal and it is glorious. The world is full of tribulation, but take heart, family, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And he has a plan to move generation by generation through his grace from suffering to glory. Do you hear that, church? Is your hope today in Jesus Christ? Is your hope of glory sure? I want us to be generational disciple-makers, people who teach others, who will teach others also, people who rely on grace and challenge the next generation biologically and spiritually to follow in the same footsteps we ourselves walk in. May we disciple each other in this church to that end, and many, I hope, also outside of these walls. But this will only happen by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only through his grace can we have the hope of glory. Amen. Friends, I want to do something to finish. Something special today. I want to invite my sister, Jen Kelsey, to come up and share a testimony of God's generational work that she shared this week. And as I invite her up, I want to invite the worship team up to play before, uh, before our last song. And after Jen Kelsey shares with us her testimony, she's going to pray for us and pray for a generational work to happen in our church. And then we will continue to worship in song. Jen. I think that's better, right? All right. Minnie Jones Madden was my great-grandmother, and about 100 years ago, she lived here um, near um, Walker and Southwest 56th. She had little children and a mean, drunk husband who was brutal to her and the kids. One afternoon, she heard some ladies singing next door, and she went out and heard them singing praises to Jesus, and she listened from the porch, and soon after, they introduced her to Christ. 
and they taught her to read and to read the Bible and to pray. Shortly after that, she moved to Shawnee in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl, and the only church service that she ever attended was the funeral of her five-year-old son. Minnie's life was very difficult, but she had this grace. Her boys all fought in the Pacific during World War II, and when they returned, she was gone, likely a heart attack. Their last memory of her mo- their mother was of her standing at the kitchen door waving goodbye as their dad stomped on her feet as he passed through the door. Inspired by her faith, her son David became a missionary to Ghana and died of malaria. Her other son, Richard, became a pastor of a small church in Sepulpa. He did mission work in India and among the homeless in Tulsa. He was also one of the chaplains at McAllister State Penitentiary working with those on death row. Richard's son, Terry, was the oldest of seven, and he felt his dad was too hard on him. But he was close to his uncle David, and when David returned to convalesce from malaria, he gave up his bed so that David could be in their home. But David died that night, and little 10-year-old Terry was forever marked by that experience. Terry's my dad. And he was a gifted witness and chose a job that would put him in people's homes every single day, installing telephones. I grew up hearing those stories at dinner every night. There were many people who gave their lives to Jesus while my dad was helping them get connected. He taught me that God will use a person who is ready and willing. And he believed that he had all these gospel conversations because God just made phones go out when people were ready to hear about him. Several times he walked in on people about to end their own lives. And he held out hope as he took their weapons away. Several other times he was offered promotions at work. And he turned them down because they would take him out of these people's homes and put him behind a desk. I don't know if Minnie Jones Madden ever prayed for me, but I know Richard and Terry did. And you know me, my life, I want to be about racing toward Jesus and helping people grow in their walk with God. And I'm a, I'm a direct descendant of their influence and their courageous their courageous choices that they made to follow Jesus even though life was very hard. I'm so glad that Minnie was the turnaround generation for me and my family. My son is here with us today. He's the fifth generation. And her influence doesn't just extend to me. I have 12 cousins. One of them, the youngest, is the captain of the SWAT team in Tulsa. And every day, he's rescuing trafficked people and abused children from terrible situations. I have another cousin who's a a family attorney who's fighting on behalf of battered women and neglected children. And there are so many more people and stories. I have a nephew who's adopting a family of three siblings right now. And I, I wonder... 
How much of all this good work was because of Minnie's decision to follow Jesus during her life? Will you bow with me now as I pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for little decisions that plant seeds that grow into tall trees of oak, trees and oaks of righteousness. Father, I pray for the people in this congregation today and for those listening at home who might never get to get out here on Sunday mornings. Their faith and your grace together can make a huge difference for your kingdom. God, I pray for those who are suffering today that they can lean in extra close to you. And I thank you for our Pastor Jared and this good word he's brought us. In your name, amen.